Welcome to Afterlives with Kara Cooney, in which we discuss ancient Egyptian history and relevant current events that we think will be of interest to our audience. I am Kara Cooney, and I'm a professor of Egyptology at UCLA. This podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at UCLA. In recent years, I've become active in communicating with the general public about the history of ancient Egypt through lectures, interviews, social media, books, and guest appearances. This podcast is my opportunity to take the kinds of deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So today we have a special guest. He's so special. So special. Specialist of special guests. But let me read his bio so we'll be legit for a second. Okay, okay. Dr. Eric Wells, he, him, received (laughs) his PhD from UCLA in Egyptology and is currently an adjunct professor at LMU in the Department of Classics and Archaeology. You can ask what classes you teach later. Uh, He is also a chief administrative officer at UCLA for the Life Sciences Core Education Department and the Center for Educational Education, Innovation, and Learning in the Sciences. That's really it's complicated. A it's a mouthful. Wow. It's all sorts of innovation and education who, and learning. Who invented that? Who invented that? Yeah. Do you really want to know? Not really. <laughs> I can imagine a committee somewhere. And well. And we, we all remember them. Eric from. Yes. Well, okay. That's my first oh, I'm question. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Welcome to the podcast first. Thank you. You know, Amber said that, like, you guys step on each other sometimes or you've gotten that feedback but I'm not seeing it at all no not no, at all not at yeah. all it's very smooth yeah <laughs> we have different mics now so she can turn it yes down I can just will. turn Kara off <laughs> or me off when I interrupt her because I do it too so I don't know as a lifelong Lakers fan or any of you watching winning time no makes them all look bad but the, the funny thing in it is Chick Hearn longtime broadcaster for the Lakers he has these guys in they're his assistant broadcasters. And when he wants them to stop talking, he just holds his hand up in a fist. <gasps> and it works. So you can try it with us. Yeah. But we well, might I, think deck Jor- you. I think Jordan needs to keep us on. I think. Well, oh, you. Fist was okay, up. if you do it, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> do it to me because I, we interrupt each other all the time. All the time. So. And we seem to have no problem with it, but our listeners do. Yeah, we're just good at multitasking, I yeah. think, and our brains can handle yeah. t- multiple conversations. Hey, I think it's great. I'm a fan of the show. I was So going back in time, yes. right, because this is, you know, you have episode delayed, so you just had your top five debates in Egyptology. Yes. Yes. Do you have an opinion on anything? Oh, I think I'm a Jordan guy. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, Kara, but oh. I'm, I'm, I'm going for, like, you know, probably an internal built-in ramp, which you two seem to be aligned on. Yeah. I'm you a, agree with Houdan too. I think that that's most likely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm so pleased. I'm a Sphinx Coffre guy. Yeah. Sorry. You guys are wrong. You're, you're, I was going to say you're, I think that I'm a minority. That Sphinx is 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 years old already. It was a lion before it was out, the, before it was carved into a lion, is my point. So the Giza Plateau was chosen for the lion. Khufu was the first one to build there. So it's, it was his choice to, we it's talk his. about it being reused. It's his. It, it is an interesting idea, but I, I put it with Coffre. Uh, let me see, what else did you, the did you all talk of about? It into its current think state was by Coffrey. I yeah. think yeah. wrong. <laughs> I, I, I no do PhD a, for you. I know, right? We need to save this till after you filed. Yes. <laughs> um, Sorry, but, can, how how much can I disagree? Right, <laughs> you can disagree. I know, um, I know you. <laughs> I, I I completely agree with your sentiment about us being more broad to open conversations. But mm. I'm a Smenkare younger brother. <gasps> oh. uh, and in fact, I will go because I younger will brother off- of who. Younger brother of Aknan. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. I think I think son of Amenhotep the Third, and I will extend that to say, KV fifty five mummy is Smenkare. I think, and I think that Tut is actually nephew of Aknan. 
Ugh. nephew of Akhenaten. Not his son. Not his son through, yeah. via his daughter. I, I, and what about the Ankepure, the repetition of a throne name, which never happens? So here, so here's my thing. Yeah. In terms of, I, I guess, starting off with the Nefertiti side. Yeah. She's in the great hymn to the Aten. Yeah. And he does such conscious effort to develop this triad that includes her. Yeah. She loses cachet if mm. you're dealing with the name change. She is so elevated that I think you're likely looking at a co-regency with her. She dies quickly somehow. And the other thing I will say, and this is, um, you know, to go into kind of your final debate. Yeah. Well, I will also say monotheism, but that's quick. Yeah. To go into Tut's tomb, yeah. I think Nick Reeve makes a great point about that funerary mask probably being hers because yeah. Yeah. of the vulture. Oh, yeah. And yeah. even when you look at, you know, the KV-55 mummy, doesn't have that element. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it gets enough shine. Y'all should do something on it later, maybe. Yeah. But when we Kevin look at... Because oh, his yeah. talk at RC, like... It was complicated with all the different like names and epithets and yeah. stuff, but he made a really cogent argument about Spencare, Nefertiti, like reigning, yeah. you know, is separated. We have to start uh, bringing people in on Zoom. Yep. We have to start yeah. doing this. Yeah. So anyways, I think we hit all of them. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's what I was, so I mainly... <laughs> it's like you prepped and you brought your weaponry. Well, uh, oh, so, so, so that was my, that was my, that was my good. So there's the bad thing that I need to talk about is I do have a critique. Yeah. <laughs> So, first off, I had to sleep with your producer just to get on the show. <laughs> he said, she said. <laughs> oh. You interview her. It takes me an hour to come up. I think I, I was like, oh, I guess we know who, who the Hemet, the Hemet Nesut Weret is in the relationship. I'm, I'm the Kia to your Nefertiti, apparently, Kara. I'm the minor wife over here. That is not consent to be brought into this conversation. <laughs> Amber's not consenting to any of this. <laughs> yes. So for those who may be catching up or don't know, so Amber is my is my partner. Yeah. Um, and if you haven't listened to her episode, go back and it's listen to episode. it. It's a great episode. It's a really good episode. Um, well, it was all really about her, her journey. You, you made an appearance. I, I did. Like an hour <laughs> a in. A minor appearance. A minor no, appearance. No big deal. <laughs> but what's Eric's journey? Because a lot of people are going to know him. They're going to be like the yes. Eric Wells. The Hold Eric on. Wells. Yes. So we can address we're gonna address the elephant in the room shall we <laughs> right so what's up with eric's guide to ancient egypt or yeah. what happened what happened to it yeah uh, so i've corresponded with some listeners about it but um it's with the pandemic it's really hard to kind of go back in time yeah um but basically and this is something we can talk about so i've had a kind of interesting career journey um and at, i think at that time we had just moved my mom was diagnosed with cancer, and luckily she survived that and is still alive. Yeah. Um, I was working, I think, three different jobs, mm -hmm. um, and it, I just didn't have, didn't have the time, time for it. Yeah. Um, I had just started a position at UCLA's Academic Senate. Mm -hmm. um, that was which, a hard job. It was a hard job. It was a good, it was a good job. I liked it, but mm -hmm. it was I was doing that. I was still at LMU. I was doing some other work on the side, so. Um, it just became too much. And my goal was never, it was never something that I intended to monetize. Yeah, and it shouldn't be like a burden, right? It should be something yeah, fun. Yeah, I mean, it, it was nice when I had the time. It was basically something, it, it took me about an hour total, or a, not an hour total. <laughs> it would take me about a day a week, but yeah. spread over the week. I'd mm -hmm. do some research here and there. It wasn't nice like you folks where it was a conversation. So I would have loose notes. I would decide what I want to talk mm -hmm. about, do some research. And then usually that would be like half a Saturday, you know, no, I it, totally get it. Because I used to do all these these uh, Facebook lives that I would put on YouTube during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And there came a point where I was like, okay, I'll see you guys soon. And then I was just like, you know, I can't handle this anymore. Yeah. Too much prep, 
too much criticism is too much on my shoulders alone. I needed a sidekick, I needed a buddy, and now it's much more fun. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah. Yeah. This is the way well, and our kids are pretty much the same age. Mm -hmm. Your son's a little bit older than, mm -hmm. than, than our oldest. And they also, two. we have two, but yeah. that, and that also became something where, you know, when you, when you are so much, and especially I know with you, you know, Kara, traveling so much, right? Yeah. When you're home, your kids want you. And it's yeah. hard to say, yeah. I'm going to go disappear in the garage mm -hmm. for, for six hours and do this when yeah. you don't Different usually areas. see me at night because yeah. I get homework from work late and so but true. I hope to maybe I was say, is there someday, any plans to resurrect? Maybe. So we'll see how this goes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, I, I, would, I would love to if I have time. And I think I'm hopefully entering a point where maybe this year. So, you know, the, the pandemic, I, I started a different new job, my chief administrator job um, mm -hmm. that you had mentioned, Jordan. I started that two months before the pandemic. Mm. So that's been, that's been really insane yeah. um, to come into a new job where I'm you know, basically like the CEO of these units on campus. And within two months, it was setting up, okay, what's a business continuity plan? And the, none of these things existed. No, madness. Same thing for, for Kara in her role yeah. as chair. Madness. How do we pivot to online? Yep. Um, but I mean, we've all been such, through such yeah. shared trauma over the past years. It's hard to go back in time and remember. Mm -hmm. Okay, so today we're going to drill into your PhD research and some of the stuff you've been looking at, right? So looking at the co-option of religious systems for social display and networking, personal piety. We can talk about topic. that and other lower elite religious practices and stuff. So as Egyptologists, we know personal piety is a hotly debated term. It came up twice at RC, by the way. Yeah. Really? Yes. And, and it was criticized in both cases but so what, what or what are the critiques about it was it poor students who brought it up or were, was it it was grad students who brought them up it, within their I, I can't remember the the context damn it um but it was it was like these statues are for this and mm. they have been explained as personal piety but it's not really just personal piety it is more and so it was it's you know a broadening of what personal piety is it's been such a knee-jerk reaction to explaining certain religious changes mm -hmm. that, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept. And so we should define personal piety yeah. for our audience. Yep. Who wants to do it? I think Eric should. So I can tell you how your... I do it. Okay, yeah. please. But, but it's going to be different than most. I'm fine. Well, you um, have to give like the Egyptological. Yeah, what's the typical. Like who, who invented it more or less. And... Sure. Uh, so, so I think for us, at least what I think about it, I think about Breasted, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And he talks about the religion of the poor. Mm -hmm. um, and he's looking at Dier al-Medina, who your Obviously, listeners have not probably. not poor also. Not exactly. poor. So lower, they're not, lower elite. They're not poor. They're lower elite. And he looks at this as like, oh, crap. Individuals can show themselves worshiping a god. Mm-hmm. I think the first attestation of something we have that, that has that, I think, is actually Second Intermediate Period um, or very early New Kingdom. Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, we, it's, it, for me, it's really an aspect of decorum. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? I, I think individuals have that connection, they just don't show it. Yeah. So decorum is defined by John Baines. Yes. Which are rules of display, um, what ritual, you're to show. what you're allowed to do and show in a religious or, or a high elite social context. Yeah, and I, and I think today, especially in America, we all get this, right? It's like code switching, mm -hmm. right? It's, you're going to speak a certain way in front of your parents yep. as you are in a grad seminar than you are even when you're teaching. Mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of like Kara, I, I will curse in class and I do it very intentionally to bring emphasis and you yeah. see them jump. Yeah. Um, they're kind of their conscious decisions yep. about I'm going to break what you think I should be doing to get you to pay attention. Yep. Um, and Egypt, you know, for me, so, so kind of I look at it this way, and I think most Egyptologists do by nature of the evidence, but 
you know, we have a very kind of anal school, long durée approach. And for me, Egypt is essentially a firm, strong central authority that takes over and unifies. And the rest of Egyptian history is that slowly bleeding out. Mm. And them trying to retake it in fits and starts, mm -hmm. but it never gets back. Almost like cosmogony, it never gets mm -hmm. back to the Septepi. It never gets back to the first mm. occasion when you have Khufu. Or the first, no, Khufu's like way after, first dynasty, when you don't even need that kind of monumentality. Mm -hmm. And instead, you're able to kill your courtiers yeah. with with impunity and include them in your tomb. I mean, that's the, the power that they're always trying to get back mm -hmm. to. The yeah. pyramid is an attempt. Yeah, and they never do, never. right? It's They can get a little bit closer. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that you see that in the cemetery structures. You, you know, everything is so much about the king and his influence. And you mentioned the word septepi or the phrase septepi, which means first time, mm -hmm. right? So the, the creation of the world, creation of kingship, creation of that first power, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, so... So, so personal piety uh, then extends from this, you know, we can see it first as kind of visual, you know, coordination with yeah. the God, showing themselves, worshiping it. Although, you know, we can see sometimes they're not even directly able to do it, right? Yeah. It's through the king as an intermediary. They worship the king, the king worships the God. But we see, happens in the 18th dynasty, but especially 19th, 20th, we see mm -hmm. that individuals start worshiping gods directly, showing it. They start writing hymns to, to gods. And this is usually related to post-Amarna stuff, right? Yeah, so if we take the Osman approach, right, two yeah. things come out of Amarna. We see personal piety and we see and we see kind of transcendence in mm -hmm. the Ba theology. And this is Jan Osman, a German yes. Egyptologist. Too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's very, very much an anthropologist as well. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of see these two trends. So that's traditionally, I think, how Egypt, Egyptologists look mm -hmm. at it. And, and I should also say, Breasted, the father of American Egyptology, <laughs> trained in Germany, um, but we're talking 100 years ago. Yeah. Um, so he predates Osman. So of course, our, our understanding and, uh, and of these phenomena grows. But so it's that, it's that personal connection and individuals worshiping, because strictly speaking with Egyptian religion, they shouldn't. Yeah. Um, it's really about the king. The king has the divine ka. He's got a semi-divine nature. He's divine in his office, and he worships the gods, and he takes care of men. Mm -hmm. um, so he's really a and person. And women. And women. <laughs> mankind, sorry. Um, uh, what does it, Mary Carre says? You know, the flock of mankind. Yes, the flock. Yeah. Um, so he takes care of them. So, so that, I think, is kind of the traditional view of mm -hmm. personal piety. Um, so then what's yours, or what critique do you find with this? Uh, so, so for me, I actually like the, the German term Gottesnähe, mm -hmm. um, which I translate as like divine approximation. Because mm -hmm. um, piety, I think, has too many Personal, Judaic yes. Christian connotations. Mm -hmm. Because while we do see some much later that get that, it's really about, I think, being close to a god. Mm -hmm. And I think we see that with the elites who build statuary who build objects that they literally are trying to get as close to that god as they can yeah right and we see that in the middle kingdom with hekaib mm -hmm. we can see that you know certainly when we look at amenhotep son of hapu um, where he even entreats other people to worship him that he is this intermediary mm -hmm. so i actually think it very much is about a proximity as opposed to what we think of as piety which is devoutness belief and belief yeah. exactly well so then what are you what are they trying to get from this closeness what does the closest get them? So, yeah, so, so I think, you know... And can, uh, I, can I just say, when you see this personal piety, you'll see a stila of a woman dressed in her finest linen, mm -hmm. 
uh, garment and she's kneeling before like an actual huge depiction of Merit Sager, goddess uh, who loves silence, yeah. right? As a snake. And she's there right in front of her face to face with her arms raised up in worship and there's a prayer. Mm -hmm. And you see something like that that's, that's then donated in the Western desert in her shrine area. And uh, ostensibly, she then paid for this stila. She had some sort of ritual to set it up. Maybe she visits it once yep. it's placed there. And it shows her personal connection with this goddess, Merit Sager. Mm -hmm. And you see this for all different kinds of divinities uh, in Western Thebes, where we have so much evidence, but throughout Egypt, right? Yeah. And, Which is your, and your dissertation is based on all of gets this. connected right? with like a, someone's personal god. Mm -hmm. Like they choose one god over others to be kind of more closely and your dissertation related. was based on Asyut mm -hmm. and the god Wepwawut, mm -hmm. a, a jackal god and you have similar sila right you have mm -hmm. people worshiping the dogs running or the dogs that sitting there recumbent or the jackal-headed god is a human hybrid um and and you see the you see males and females doing this sometimes females alone sometimes the male mm -hmm. with family and all of these different and so you you broke this personal piety down within its contextual framework, which is really cool. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, and I think that for, for a lot of this, I think too, it's even the aspect of choice, I, I wonder how much of that there is. Uh -huh. And at Dier al-Medina, it looks complex and there's all of these gods that are being worshiped. But I think what you find systematically, especially if we look at Stila, is they're focused on locality. Mm -hmm. and the locality of divinity. Um, they've never really been published, but the, the Kantir stila from Pyramuses, most of which are in Hildesheim, mm -hmm. the Roman Palatius, um, built during Ramses' lifetime, Ramses the Great, but he pushed the cult of himself as a god. Mm -hmm. So you see Ramses worshiping a statue of Ramses, <laughs> yeah. and you see people doing that too. And at Asiut, you know, 95% of the stila there are focusing on Wepwaut. Yeah. Yeah. And depending on their class, it can be that mixed form that Kara was talking about, which maybe means they had access to the actual divine statue. Mm -hmm. The standard, As a super elite who gets to go into the back room of the temple. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's the, the standard, which would have gone out kind of uncovered that people could have seen. But most people, uh, and certainly lower elite, focused or on... Or just normal, or normal peasant people. people. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, focused on um, just images of canines yeah. um, and I believe from this evidence and from what we know textually right that we had a procession and it was a divine herd um, and that for them they saw these animals as bomb manifestations of the god not like the apis bull not not a herald mm -hmm. um, but that these were connected to that divinity and they show themselves feeding these dogs, watering these dogs. So wait, go back. So we have a temple in Asiu. I was just gonna say. Which is dedicated yeah. to the god Wepwa, the mm -hmm. opener of ways. But first, where's Asiu? Where's Asiu? Middle Egypt. Middle okay, Egypt. So it's a so provincial setting. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I, I think it's fair to say. It, right, I think provincial. it's fair to say it's a backwater. Yeah, right? so it's Most not Egyptologists the capital, would say it's that. not Memphis, it's not Thebes. Mm -mm. Yeah. It's Middle Egypt, middle of nowhere. Yeah. It's you don't not have as much agricultural land, yeah. so there's not as much wealth, the elites so there. So we're thinking provincial, mm -hmm. uh, provincial settings, yeah. And you're saying that at, this, at the temple there, there is a place where they're, they're breeding and bringing up a, a pack of dogs, holy a holy and divine pack of dogs that that they then run in a procession. That, That's my thought. Yeah. yeah. Um, much the same way, and I don't know, you know, you two may know, I'd, I've never seen evidence that they found this archaeologically in terms of those type of kennels, mm -hmm. but we have millions of canine mummies at Saqqara. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, that's the, that, that's kind of the dark side of this, right? And this is where it gets complicated for animal manifestations, right? 
many of those, I mean, first off, it's great that some of them, it's just like sand and clay. Yeah, they're fake. Uh, yeah. They're, they're fake. I mean, very clearly, there's a marketing aspect um, to this, especially in later periods, I think. But um, many of these were just neck snapped, yep. you know, ritually killed with the idea, we think that this was, you know, kind of attached to a god. Mm -hmm. And that by killing this animal, you know, your prayer, whatever wish it would return kind of, its ba would return yeah. back to that great with, and maybe carry that with it. But that's late period and, and Greco-Roman. You don't have, we, you don't have evidence at Asiut until late period to Greco-Roman that you have that kind of animal mummification happening in large numbers, right? Yeah. Well, and I don't even, I mean, and we don't, we have some mummies, but not like we do at Sakaar like and other that. places. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I don't think we see that type of industry there. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that this is just people who, in terms of stela and clay objects and things, are depicting their experience. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's why I like Gatisnea, which is literally like nearness to the mm -hmm. god. It's how do you experience well, this religion? And that makes sense that it's all about Wet'wa'ut then, because Asiut is Wet'wa'ut's province. And yeah. then so that's his, you know, his house. And then so then you would be closer to him physically, you know, I think so. Space. And and Kara, Kara knows this. We were actually just talking about it a few weeks ago. Um, when you actually look at the slides that are attested for Dero Medina, you think it's going to be Amun. And Amun, in terms of just the numbers of stela dedicated, mm -hmm. falls way behind Merit Seger, mm -hmm. Amenhotep, the, yeah. the first in Amos Nefertari, and Ta. So again, there's, even within the Theban region where Amun is supposed to, this is his home, and he's being pitched as this transcendent god, mm -hmm. The workmen of the pharaohs are still doing what they're seeing as most locally Smaller connected. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they yeah. may come from all different kinds of places because, as you pointed out, Daryl Medina has a personal pious relationship or this gotisnea, this nearness to God, with, so, with a much higher variety of divinities mm -hmm. than you see really anywhere else where stila production is attested. I know we only have Kantir and, and Asyut and a few other scattered places, but still it's remarkable mm -hmm. to see that richness and diversity. And, I, and, and obviously, uh, I'm a New Kingdom boy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We're all New Kingdom We're all people. New Kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and and we, we could easily extend this back to the Great Terrace at Abydos mm. in the Middle Kingdom mm -hmm. with, yes, with, yep. with yep. the elite going there and donating shrines mm -hmm. and, you know, all things. in the processional way. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think it's all about experience. And, and then where I get very cynical, and this is Kara's influence, <laughs> is the way that that, that that system is then co-opted yes. to reinforce and say... I get to display this yeah. because I'm up here and you're down there. Mm -hmm. So my take on personal piety, and I just wrote an article for the Oxford History of Ancient Egypt, um, or no, the Oxford History of the Ancient Near East yes. and the Egyptian part. That's a, a bottle of Oban that's being opened. We are <laughs> yeah, drinking whiskey. Okay, um, so I'm going to take it back a bit just to make sure our audience yes. is fully on the same page as us. First part of your argument is to say, yes, votive stila has served this religious function. So what religious function do votive stila serve um, in general? And then, you know, especially in Asayut and in this provincial setting, um, just to give some background in general to the audience who maybe don't know, we'll throw some pictures of the stila into the show notes and stuff so you can see, see what they look like. And I think once people see them, they're pretty obvious of how they're functioning, but you know, what visibility are they getting? How are they functioning within the landscape? All these types of things. Yes. And, and as a religious is, artifact. Absolutely. And, the, and that's what's really, I think, one of the interesting things. So all of these were found in one tomb. Okay. Um, that's an interesting. Um, a tomb. Uh, it was an appropriated tomb from a, a Middle Kingdom kind of nomarch there. Okay. Kind of like they were put away. 
The like everyone in the temple like was like, we're done sense. with these. We're going to put them away. That's cool, and actually. that's it. That they I, just didn't like... Because at Dhirol Bahri, we have some stuff that just like toss it into like the side. This, this, so, so very interesting. Um, so it was, these were discovered in what they call the Salakana Trove, the Salakana yes. Tomb, uh, in 1922. So what else happened that year? Howard Carter discovered it. Oh, so this got was no like, shine. Everyone was like, who cares? They find this and they're probably thinking, oh my God, we've got like 500 yes. stela in this tomb. They're set up against the walls. They don't yeah. appear to just be thrown in. Um, and there's like one report on it. So sad. And that's it. And, and they're Aww. published by Duquesne. Terence Duquesne, yeah. Is it Duquesne or Duquesne? I say Duquesne. Um, doesn't he say Duquesne? Duquesne? He passed, so he doesn't say anything. Oh. <laughs> but, 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 Sorry, um, <laughs> um, but Terence was a lovely man. Um, Blessings be upon him. I, I give it the, the French Uja, pronunciation, but he, he was British, so. Okay. Oh. So he could say Duquesne. But I always, I always said Duquesne. These are all, for the most part, um, in the basement of the Cairo Museum. Okay. And he was, you know, kind enough to share with me his unpublished materials. Zahi was uh, kind enough to allow me to go there to see some of them. Oh. Um, you got to go in the basement? I did. <gasps> so, so, so religiously speaking, these were in the, this trove. Um, and yes, I think they were moved there after the fact. And then the question becomes... Can I interrupt you real quick? Yes. Do we have the temple of what, what no. there? No. Do we know where it was? Uh, we think you we know where it's at. You have a procession way. Uh, I have, so, so we have part of it where we think it is. Um, okay. It's under modern Asiyud. I mean, ah, okay. same thing okay, as Heliopolis, okay. right? Okay. Um, we have, you know, a temple of Anubis that we think was there. There's a sacred grove that I think was attached to this necropolis too. It's been speculated. Okay. Um, so, so what I basically, from where people have speculated these things, I think the processional would go to this sacred grove area across the necropolis. Um, to the Temple of Anubis. And connect with the ancestors. And the Temple of Anubis or Webwawa, so kind of both, so is in the at West. At this time it's both, right? So, so there's, um, if you're thinking in your head, if we're looking, you know, kind of to the Northeast, in the main city is where the Temple of Webwawa would be. Mm -hmm. um, we have, to the Southwest, we have the Necropolis. And there's, we think was a temple to Anubis there. Oh, okay. Um, so I think that that's something where you know, yeah, like the, you know, beautiful Feast of the Valley, we have, you know, probably Wepwalt going there. Yeah. You bring the statue, you carry the statue aloft in a bark, the priests carry it on their shoulders to, from one temple to another to visit. And for Wepwalt and Anubis, since they're both jackals, one could assume there's kind of a melding of different yeah. powers and things. One that has the chthonic power, but they're both chthonic, right? Mm -hmm. They're both underworldly gods. Yeah. I, it was likely something, again, I think tied to, you know, uh, a revivifying of the blessed dead, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. of that community. Bringing the ancestors in. Yeah. And the stela are, are a testament to that because you see them, they would be a place where their own family members could visit when they had passed on. So you have an ancestral connection. Yeah, so were the stelas yeah. set up like along the way or in the temple? Or? So, so my thought is probably that some of them were probably set up in all of those locations. Okay. You had some probably in the temple, you probably had some along the processional way. So like depending on probably how elite you were, you got like the prime location. I think so. Maybe, perhaps, yeah. Um, I think so. Um, but then it also becomes an issue, right, of who do you want to see that stila? Yes. Yeah. Um, and that could be something where, you know, it could be that it, I think probably at some point they co-opted this, this tomb to start depositing there. And then mm -hmm. that was maybe some place where they were set up as part of the procession or it was just a stop that was made you know oh, okay to see all of them kind yeah of and then individuals would treat it as like a, mm -hmm. a communal kind of you know mm -hmm. internment space where they could go there and as they're carrying the statue of the god from temple to temple and and back again the dogs are allowed to run 
along this route. This is my thought, is that they're, they're part of this. I mean, dogs can be trained. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And my thought is that it's probably some sort of sacred herd that's following. And Wepwell, because he's a standard, you know, the images that we have, the, the, the priests are shown carrying it, but they're shown carrying the standard. We don't actually see the divine statue covered in a shrine the way we no, do, like don't. with Amun. Okay. So, so there was more visibility here, which I think probably then for the elite gives more of a emphasis if you're showing that mixed form, if you're showing a divine statue, because most probably weren't even seeing that go out in procession. Hmm. The thing that the thing that I like about this is that not only is there more um, visibility, one could argue that there's more, there's, there's a deeper, older, um, there's less state involvement. There's less court involvement. And the court likes to mess with things, claim with things, pee all over their territory, if you like. And this the the locals are kind of allowed to let this develop as they would like it's an organic development and so you can see potentially an, a much older practice mm-hmm. at work here something that maybe thebes used to have or heliopolis used to have until it was co-opted by state power to create a particular agenda and i, I really like that yeah when we talk about the king mm. we're probably talking about thebes elephantine memphis you know, Heliopolis, all these other places are just doing their own thing. And maybe the king's retinue passes through every few years, if that, mm-hmm. um, if they decide to pull the bark over <laughs> and go for a but visit. Yeah, that was my, I had a, one question about that. Like, do you, what were the interactions between Asiut elites with the like, court elites mm-hmm. or other elites? Like in my head, I'm just picturing like Asiut being like Arkansas, like an Arkansas yeah. elite. Yeah. And then, you know, Memphis and Thieves being like New York and Los Angeles. I mean, the and... governor of Arkansas, you know, Clinton did go to Harvard yep. and did become president of the United States. Elites are always interconnected and they always find a shorter yeah. distance to other elites. Yeah. Then they go back to their hometowns and their local places. They embed in those in those places mm-hmm. and do their weird older provincial festivals. But then they come back to the center and they, they have that code switching themselves. Yeah. But an yeah. elite from Arkansas, say, going to New York, being amongst those elites mm-hmm. is probably then a lower elite amongst the New York elites. But when they come back to Arkansas, then they're, yeah. you know, top dog. Yeah. You know, yeah. so having this dichotomy with the interaction. Yeah. Well, and I think that this is where, you know, it's, it, it ties to one of the more interesting things of the period mm-hmm. that we talked a little bit about earlier, which is, I think, especially in the Ramesid period, there's this tension between, as Kemp would say, the kind of new military man, because mm-hmm. the military allows social mobility. Yeah. So you have, and that's where we see more diversity at Asiut tends to be with the military. Okay. Who, I mean, and it's like that in Arkansas today. If it's you're like in a poor everywhere. town and you want to get out, you can join the military and that can get you college, that can get you to travel abroad. No offense to people from Arkansas. My dad was born in Arkansas, so we're all good. He was born and grew up in Arkansas, so everything's everything's fine. (laughs) We love Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's it's it is a social mobility structure available to anybody in the states um, that that's a venue, and I think that that was something that we can see some of them taking advantage of. But like we see in our study, that was not the majority. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think these local communities largely did their own thing in absence of the king, Um, and and then that makes you wonder. So to go back to Amarna. Right? I am one of the people who would say, yeah, we can see destruction of the name of Amun throughout the country. Um, but most of those people probably kept doing their thing. Mm-hmm. It was probably where it would probably hurt was Thebes. Yeah. But, you know, are we to believe either Tutankhamun's restoration stila or Haremheb's restoration stila when they talk about, you know, the shrines are empty, their footpaths, 
you know, Egypt can't win a battle. No, I think most of these towns were still just doing their own thing. I think they still went around. I think Akhenaten went around and took everyone's gold to fund his regime. And then the shrines are empty makes a whole lot of sense. But at the, at the level of the ordinary experience, the only, if that, if that shrine is empty, only the high priest and the higher level priests would have even have been accessing it. Maybe. They could and be they, taking... maybe they wouldn't have taken their fetish or their other things, right? Who needs a yeah. fetish? It's not fungible. Well, I mean, this goes back to just the whole, like, religious practice in general of, quote-unquote, normal people. They're not going to, like, a church service every day mm-hmm. or something, right? They're, there's nothing to believe in. It just is. So how, like, what daily practice they're even doing that we would, cate- you know, categorize as religious or something like this if they had, like, a personal shrine in their house for, like, family... Um, but that's so cool. That's why his work is so interesting because yeah. he's able to see that normal provincial people are interacting with the dogs and the elite people are interacting with the god as a hybrid mm-hmm. man jackal, yeah. which is ostensibly the statue in the temple or something. So there's completely different levels of interaction and you Access. can see it in the, yeah. in the steel in a daily practice or yeah. a festival practice, which is pretty damn cool. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think one of the things that... Um, and this goes back to kind of the racist history of Egyptologists, right? Um, you know, when we talk about Amarna and if it's monotheism, the only reason that's important is because it would be the documented first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that goes back to a 19th century idea that societies move linearly and you have animism down here mm-hmm. and shamanism and at the top is monotheism. Mm-hmm. And they're pushing that mm-hmm. and they're pushing that narrative to get to there. Um, and I, and I, Bring this to say that I think one of the things that you just talked about, Jordan, is ancestor worship mm-hmm. is largely ignored and not talked about in Egypt, yeah. ancient yeah. Egypt, and it was a major part of people's oh, yeah. lives. Major, yeah. Yeah, huge yeah. ancestor like, bus. Look at Dermot Medina, Amenhotep well, the First, and Ahmed Nefertari, the founders of yeah. their Edfu's village. New mm-hmm. that new stuff from Edfu in the New Kingdom villa, where they have that little shrine with the ancestor bus like falling off of it. But there's that they found a shrine right when you walk in the house to the left. There's a shrine set up, and they have an ancestor bust that fell off, and they have that's stuff. That's the coolest. <laughs> we have, <laughs> and we have letters to the dead. Yeah, letters to the dead. Yeah. And again, we, you know, we were talking earlier about what we may have, what we not have in terms yeah. of temples, right? Um, it's great that we have, you know, we can look at Thebes and we can look at Karnak, right? But for the type of questions we're talking about now, the most interesting thing are those houses that are underneath modern cities yep. mm-hmm. that yeah. we're not going to have access to. Yeah. Or, or ephemeral things that don't preserve the archaeological record that we'll never have access to, right? Yeah. There are some remnants of these practices in Upper Egypt. Hmm. And there was the new AUC book that's about it that I'll, I, I've mentioned it before on the podcast and I never remember the name of the author. And it's, it's all about how long durée, deep ancient Egyptian practice mm-hmm. is embedded in sheikh practices in in funerals. Yep. And it's wonderful to see that mm-hmm. cultural memory continuing. Yeah, so on their these birthday, things are there. They go up to the tomb these and things yeah. are there. So the second half of your argument, besides its religious the religious nature of these votive uh, stila, is there you know, you argue that the primary intention of these stila is to convey, communicate to the larger community the identity of the people. Um, self-presentation in a sense, right? So I'm thinking like, are these the Facebook or IG feeds of the day (laughs) where you would say, you know, this is who I am, this is how I want to be read and received by the community and remembered because they would still be used post the individual's um, death. 
Um, is that how we are to understand them? Not everyone must have gotten a stila. We're Not talking about 500 them. and how many people would have lived in these villages Well, and over. you know the super elites would have had a statue. They were like, stilas are below me. I'm going to have a statue that's going to go up in the temple that's, you know, even closer to the god, but then less people get to see it. Yeah, so I, th I think, and, and in a way, I, I would maybe split the two, and I would say this is definitely Instagram, because it, okay. <laughs> it is very curated, like Instagram uh -huh. is, right? Facebook, you, like, you see half the stuff people post on Facebook, and you're like, oh my god, why yeah. would you post that? And there's typos, <laughs> yes. and they're not thinking about it. Whereas Instagram, it's like, what's the perfect shot? Very what's curated. the perfect location? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something where even a simple steal, because many of these don't have names, they don't have titles, okay. but the whole community is seeing you place that. Right, okay. and if it's stone, which which most of these are clay, but if it's stone, oh, you put more in, right? Um, so so this is where that act of of doing it, yeah, I think that communicates it. And again, kind of you know, it's something where you know people aren't necessarily conscious of all of these streams the mm -hmm, same mm -hmm. way that somebody who's engaging in a practice that we as historians etymologically see, just like Kara said, oh. You're doing this, and this ties back to Sheikh practice, which mm -hmm. ties back to this late antique religion, which we can go all the way back mm -hmm. to ancient Egyptian. They don't know that, yeah. mm -hmm. and yeah. they would. And if we confronted them with that, they would probably deny it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it would be seen as sacrilegious because mm -hmm. they're Muslim, and no, that's not the practice. It's we do this in the same way that Roman Catholicism is polytheistic yes, yeah. in practice. You yeah. know, yeah. and all three of us, I think, grew up with Roman Catholicism. Was, yeah. And it's, you know, you go to this saint's chapel and pray to St. Jerome for this or St. Lucia mm -hmm. for that. And that it's, it's polytheism, but no one wants to be confronted with that. But as you said, monotheism is, is given the dominant superior cultural position yeah. globally yeah. rather than polytheism. I want to be a good polytheist, so I'm just saying that right now. That's, well, and, that's where and, I find myself. But to go back to Jordan's point about what we can't recapture, what's ephemera, yeah. I mean, right, as Catholics, like how many times do we see, and it's strange as American Catholics, right, you see that old festival in Italy and it's all the young men flagellating themselves yeah, in mm -hmm. front of the procession. That's not captured anywhere except in people's memories, but it marks you out and it marks your family out, right? And if we go back into, you know, the Renaissance and it's the Medici donating a, tap, a, a chapel, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it's seeing you go up the stairs on your hands and knees, mm -hmm. you know, it's all of these pilgrimage things are, can be equally about being seen doing it as about doing it. Yeah. Oh, yeah whether or not the person themselves is conscious of that and says, I'm doing this to be seen or I'm doing this because it's I'm religious devout. religious piety, yeah, exactly. The other thing I want to talk about is you, you note the lack of inclusion in most of these stilas of the extended family, which feels very modern to me, you know, very, you know, this focus on individualism. Me. Me, me, me. <laughs> um, very Instagram. Is this part of this personal piety where it has to be you and the God? Um, I'm thinking... I looked for my master's thesis, I looked at a series of Hathor votive cloths from mm -hmm. Dirl Bahri, and those were always the extended family, but, you know, in a list back of importance, but worshipping Hathor. And those are always explained away as, you know, the people can't afford stones, so they do it on cloth, um, and that they're usually women, so you have to include the rest of the extended family, but from your stilas, that's not the case. Women can stand alone and yeah, when I think, and I'll connect this to something that I, th I think Kara talked about earlier. Um, and, and I think that's, that's framing it with its, its social and political context. Mm -hmm. And a family from Asayut, where there's very little social mobility, they probably knew who everyone was. Yeah. And if we see it as a purely functional religious object, um, then you know maybe it was accessible enough that people felt they could donate it themselves. I mean, again, if we're talking about 
it's great, we have 500, and we think, oh my god, we're so many. Well, if we're looking at the entire <laughs> New Kingdom, that's less than one a year. Yeah. Right? So yeah. it's not that many. Yeah. Um, and then our, what are our others? Like we have, and I don't think there's a good count of these, but like we have just a clay jackal. And it could have just been, you know, offering a piece of meat mm -hmm. to this dog. Yeah. Um, so, so people, I think, were engaging in different ways. But in, I would say, when we get to these major hubs like Thebes, one of the interesting things about Thebes when we look at elite families is they turn over fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. We don't see, like, this elite family that's high priest of Amun, and they go through the entire New Kingdom, right? Yeah. Um, they have to keep the king happy, and we have dynasty changes, and maybe a younger, you know, son who wasn't supposed to be king becomes king, and you weren't in with him. Everyone's trying to claim yeah. that there's too much competition. There's they competition. Can't maintain that within one family. And at ASEU, it's, I mean, it, it is very much, I think. Nice and boring. It's nice and boring, <laughs> and it is a stable, top level of society yeah. that probably married each other. Um, so maybe it's not as important, whereas I think at like a Diero Medina, we see... Yes, we see family, but we see workmen, unrelated, donating together. Yeah. Showing themselves in connections with high elites that aren't even in the village, but that are at Thebes and t at times. Mm -hmm. So I think that in some cases, they're using those social connections in a way that in a, you know, provincial town, they don't have Need. to do. Yeah. Um, in a way that in a larger, more, if we can, if we can call Thebes cosmopolitan, yeah, in the New Kingdom. Yeah. Um, that they need to do, that they need to say, hey, I, I built this statue it's for the beyond vizier. just your family. It's so yeah. you're the using the religion and religious activity not to learn more necessarily about religion, though that is important, but to learn more about the society from which it came from, who had status, how that society worked, how a provincial society may have been different from a Theban or Memphite society. Those kinds That's of what things. I take away from it. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. it, it's really, you know, at its core, it's like, it's prosopography, and we don't have biographies of these people. So we're seeing a glimpse, right? And there's this one great statue from Asiut that's in the BM now that was part of this um, that was part of this trove, and it's got like all it's got multiple registers, and it's got an anthropomorphic form of the god, and it's mm -hmm. got a recumbent jackal statue, and it's got some of the the dogs. But when you get to the bottom register, it's got Wepwad in anthropomorphic form spearing a crocodile. <laughs> wow! And it's got an individual with a, shown, with an Anubis head uh, with a jackal head wow and huh. this individual is shown breaking registers so so you have you know Anubis, you have Wepo out here register here you have a crocodile and you have an individual in between like he's fleeing mm. and over him the crocodile's being speared um, and on that Anubis is called Pashed the shave the savior and this is something where I think this is a... St. George and the Dragon kind of thing. I, well, I think this individual it, probably maybe had a dog. And we've, we oh, see these stories. Oh, and the dog saved him. Saved him, I think, from a crocodile. Oh. Um, and I think that this was something that probably happened. And he's commemorating this act on a stela. So it's taking, like, we don't know a whole biography, but we can see his titles. And the dog barked and, like, alerted to him or something. But the spearing motif is... It's an old motif, yeah. and this idea of spearing apophis or spearing disorder and and vanquishing that dragon in some way, I mean, that's that's a very old that Egyptian Anubis thing. Is... And that does, are, many argue, continue into the St. George and the Dragon yeah, yeah. motif, right? That it's pre-Christian. Um, and so, so while it could be... the there's an actual story that we're What's interesting, about? you never see a human fleeing, right? Like, the typical depiction is Seth yeah. slaying Apophis okay. or so, something. So here, so I'm, I'm showing you, and you can put it in the show notes. Okay. okay. So, uh, oh, yeah. 
Oh, wow. So the dogs. And so you can see we've got all the different registers there. So, so for me, this is something where I'm looking at this saying, okay, telling like this kind of biography of this person, um, right? Because it's so strange and so unique. Um, but this is something where, you know, then, you know, again, we can link this as something where this is like a biographical instance that's turned into an instance of piety that's also doing religious display. And, and these are the type of things where I think, okay, we can take this and say this is how some people are using the system. And, awesome, yeah. you know, then from there going to, you know, how is, um, you know, how is, how is, say, that individual who just showed themselves worshiping just the dogs, yeah. You know, what might that be? Mm -hmm. um, so again, for me, this is the type of thing where I look at this and say, people saw real life interaction. Well, we always forget about the actual experience of the person, right? We just are like, yeah, it's them doing personal piety, but everyone would have a very unique personal experience with that deity or religious practice or anything like this. It's an amazing story. That is a really cool story. Isn't it a great one? It's insane. And I like yeah. that the individual is fleeing towards Anubis, like, mm -hmm. yeah. like into his the embrace. Savior. Yeah. No, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, so, so these are the kind of things where I think, you know, looking at, looking at these stila, I think each one has a story behind it. Mm -hmm. Maybe someone was sick, maybe someone recovered, maybe someone couldn't get pregnant. Uh, maybe somebody, you know, had a, had, you know, a child who died, you know, who knows, but that there was likely some, you know. Impetus for the creation of yeah, the Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like to be cynical and I always joke with my students, but I'm not cynical enough that somebody says, I'm going to build this and everyone's going to see how great I am. Like, that's a piece of it. Mm -hmm. But there's also some genuine belief. Like, I, Amenhotep, son of Hapu, builds all these statues of himself and puts them in the courtyard and says, hey, like, I can act as enemy. He's doing that because he believes in the system. He's not doing it just to say, how many, how many statues yeah. can I build of myself? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something where it's like identity, right? It can be multivalent and we can have different identities at once, different identities that are situational. And I think with, with what we call personal piety, there's that same type of thing where there's different motivations that can be all at once. It can be different by the situation. Um, and I think we sometimes get into trouble when we try to pigeonhole it and it's all about individual sentiment and commissioning a hymn. And it's like, okay, Neferabu, and he talks about he transgresses against the peak of the West. And I was like a man on the birthing bricks. And we were like, oh, maybe he had anxiety and a panic attack and he couldn't breathe. But then he says he repents and he, she came to him like a breathe and he could breathe again. Like, yeah, we can look at that. And that's, that's something that's useful again as that kind of particular example. Um, but he's also taking the step of proclaiming this to the community. And why is he doing that? Well, it's saying he did something bad, but it's also showing that the goddess he's in her hand um, and that she's caring for him, mm -hmm. you know, so there can be all of these kind of, I think, motivations side by side that yeah. we shouldn't just say it's religious or it's political or it's social. Well, to the Egyptians, they wouldn't have made any distinction between those things like we do. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, that's like the first, uh, you know, lecture when I teach um, Egyptian religion, like, there was yeah. no word for religion. As you talk about in your dissertation that, you know, the role of festivals, festivals playing a huge role in the event of when these maybe stela would be seen um, or consumed in this manner, right? And I'm going to make it a little modern. Egypt's been having a lot of festivals lately, um, perhaps. <laughs> they have. And, they right? really We've have. We've been having the mummies being moved to the mm -hmm. museum. And lots of personal piety. In, yeah, in a sense, very personal piety. So do you think... And people showing up and having, you know, 
Yeah. It has to, you have to be invited. To be invited. You can't just show up to yeah. watch it. You have to be on their, their stands and risers yeah. and then you're allowed to see it. Yeah. So I guess just, you know, more generally, the function of festivals within communities, um, you know, one for, I see them very much in the sense of like community identity building, right? It's not just so much of like me and myself and here's my Stila, but that we're building a community, a communal identity, um, be it in modern day Egypt with, you know, transporting the mummies to the new museum or, you know, opening Luxor up when the, 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 um, the Sphinxes, the road of the, what's it called? The, the Avenue. Road. Avenue, thank you. Yes, the Avenue yes. of the Sphinxes. Um, or, you know, an Asiyut with having these processions of Wepua'ud and it's, as we were just talking about, it's not just religious or something like this. There's other things going on. There would have been communal building. There would have been feasting. Um, maybe you would meet your, you know, new husband there. Your there might be oracles. You ask the yeah. oracle a question. You might be overcome. Some of these festivals, you're supposed to get blind drunk and see divinity. Yeah. There's all kinds of crazy shit that happens in, in these like festivals. Or just like how we have parades or festivals. Mm -hmm. You know, now they're very nationalistic, which I don't mm -hmm. think we can talk about for Egypt. Yeah, say. some you can. Opit festival, nationalistic. Decade festival will become nationalistic. Yeah. Um, I know nationalistic is a big word. Yeah, it's I a think loaded the word term, is loaded. But um, I don't know. It can, it can work. Mm -hmm. See, this is so funny because when, you know, Jordan brings this up and you go to personal piety, and I would have been you, and, and when you said, what, what do you think about the recent ones? I said, I think about the good kings. Like, I'm a child of the 80s. Mm -hmm. This looks exactly like Cold War era, Soviet Union... Yeah. You know, I mean, they're they're taking the pharaohs on armored personnel carriers, yeah. <laughs> right? This is this is this is about nationalism. It's about identity. It's about saying, look at our strength, and our strength is rooted in our history. In our history, yeah. Um, going back to festivals, mm -hmm. I think to go to go to Kara's point, it's who's involved, yeah. and and when the king is involved, whether it's the Opet festival or whether he's just in town and participating, mm -hmm. it becomes something different. Mm -hmm. than when it's just the community. So when it's just like a normal Asiyud Wepwau festival. Yeah, it's probably like, oh, this is nice. And it's, you know, like, I don't know. A reason to party and have a feast. It's a and... reason to party. You know, it's not as much fun as what they're doing, you know, at the Temple of Moot. But yeah. <laughs> where there's crazy sex involved. Yeah. Where there's crazy there's sex and everybody's getting drunk. Real. There's probably still having, everyone's always having sex. There's always crazy sex, but crazy festival sex. Who knows? Who knows? Well, the Egyptians are much freer. There's not as much land ownership. The stakes aren't as high. There I'm can be way more crazy like sex. Teenagers sneaking off somewhere during the festival. <laughs> oh, I see your to point. Get some hanky panky. Yes, there's always that you crazy know. sex. Well, and the thing I wish we could recover that we can't, right, is is some of you know the Greek authors that talk about mm -hmm. these religious dramas that you'd have armies, hundreds of people dressing up like followers yes. of Horus and uh -huh. Seth and reenacting. I mean, those are the kind of things that. We I have wish Anubis we could see masks, right? Yeah. Well, and they talk about you know, right? Seth running in and you know cutting you, and then the priests have you know their massive Anubis and they're chasing him out. I mean, during the embalming ritual. Yeah. I mean, yeah, these yeah. are there were likely these cool things that we just don't have yeah. records of and would never see, but that I think were going on. Yeah. I mean, even you know, I'm, I mean, again, like we have we have decade festivals. Like, what what was that like? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, every ten days. They're yeah. doing something. And was it just a reversion of offerings? And like, here's here's yeah. the bread and the beer that we made to come donate and, collect your stuff. and come yeah. get some stuff? Or was it like a party? Like, y'all work nine days. Mm -hmm. Like I'm starting to <laughs> yeah. think like, that it was, uh... it was a showcase of specialization. Because the 10 days, the Egyptians invented the Deccan. And the Deccan is the movement of the constellations through the heavens. 
and it's a way of showcasing that they know how time works and how time moves and other mm -hmm. people don't. They're able to read the heavens and thus read the gods. And they're going out to the the Ur location at Medinat Habu where where these gods were born and where they come from. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a way in a time period of deep decentralization because it really becomes more important in at the end of the New Kingdom, yeah. um, 20th Dynasty, but into the 21st and then into the late period. Uh, but it's it's a way of of the priests as the court is pulling back its funding for the priests to be like, look what we can do. We, we are me. magicians. Yeah. We measure the heavens. We measure time. We know where every divinity is. And we can show you that every 10 days we're doing this. And it's a way of getting people to come and mm -hmm. buy shit from them, buy that that unique um, knowledge, knowledge that they have. They are, they are knowledge purveyors. Yeah. That's what I think it is. Well, and, and again, I think... Um I don't mean this is sacrilegious, and we're saying mm -hmm. this is through Catholics, right? Looking oh, you at can go there. This <laughs> is not a problem. I, I, I don't think Jordan and I are church-going Catholics <laughs> so, anyway. Never. Actually, I was only baptized, so I'm a very, very, very Oh, you're better bad. than me. I was never even baptized. I was only baptized. Oh, my God. I was baptized and confirmed, and yeah. the, the first communion, obviously before that, all of these things. I've, I did I've all never things. actually been to a mass or anything. Oh, really? I've only I been baptized. No, I had to go to church every Sunday. No, it was literally only done to make... The Polish side happy. I went to the University of <laughs> Notre Dame, and my mom was Dame. like, "Never again." Oh my so. God, Notre well, Dame, as you, we call it. You don't, you don't get a, a much better, you know, strong Irish Catholic na Irish Catholic name than Kathleen Mary, Coon yes. Mary Cooney. Yes. You do not, <laughs> Kathleen yes. Mary Cooney. It's where it's at, and I, I attended Notre Saints Dame until name, I couldn't I handle get, it anymore. Did get a Saint's middle name. But do you realize Kathleen is Catherine, which is Yekaterina, which is Hecate. <laughs> which is the goddess of magic yes. and witchcraft <laughs> makes and everything I own makes that sense. name. But so what I was going to say was, um, so, so thinking about it, um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, religion and these things, yeah. um, I think that that same priestly community and the priest as that hierarchy and as an organizing structure in society, that's uh, different than a lot of places in the ancient world. I think that's why it makes absolute sense that we have St. Anthony mm -hmm. and St. Shenouda and the start mm -hmm. of monastic communities mm -hmm. that goes into the West, but really... starts in Egypt. It starts, starts in, in Egypt. Egypt. And, yes. and it starts with them reclaiming, you know, there's, right, we kind of have, you know, hermits going out and they're reclaiming often these pagan temples and uh -huh. tombs and they're living there and forming uh -huh. communities and then they become the wise men they become yes. the and leaders it's, gnosticism is so egyptian it really you get is. a little you get not a little you get drunk you connect with your divinity you see you you see what the gods are truly made of you have a kind of oracle oracular experience yeah. and and it's you know I'm, it's a, myst a mystery that can barely be Effable. It's it's hardly containable in human thought, and you try to communicate it. Yeah. And there's angels, and yeah. it's it's um, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and yeah. we've been talking about Amarna a lot, right? But that's that that's that transcendence of a moon, that Ba theology, that you know he's an emanation. Mm -hmm. All gods are an emanations from mm -hmm. him, and then the you divine know, juju. No, yeah. and then Akhenaten comes along, and he's like, no, it's what you can see, and what you can touch, i.e., me. Everything else is a false god. We will destroy it. And he's like the worst Calvinist Protestant boring guy <laughs> who takes away everyone's buttons except for him. And it's awful. And, and I think that that's, and I think it's that point about it being for him. And I think that's one of the reasons it fails, right? Yeah. Is because it, it is, it is a monotheism, but it's a monotheism for one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for himself and Nefer Nefertiti. Yeah, the, but like yeah. not for 
not for everyone. Yeah. yeah. But let's, so let's speculate because I think this is fun. So, yeah. um, <laughs> so what do you two think? Because I always think about this, right? 17 years is not long. Mm. No. Um, oh, because we made a hard turn into Amarna. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. We'll, we'll, you can't get Egyptologists who don't want to talk about this period. Yeah. Well, so because I, I, wonder, I wonder a lot, right? What if, what if he was a Ramses? Yeah. What if he was a the Third? What if you had 50 years? In the ancient world, you're getting like two generations under him in this religion. Does it stick? The second generation would have been the most interesting because they would have had no memory of what yeah. was before. Yeah. You know? It's just this is what it is. It's, it's, it's light and we go into the temple and we don't see a god in procession. We see the king in a chariot. And we see the sun disc, and we leave our offerings out there, and they spoil. I think it had to smell awful. It must have been. Oh, all the yeah. rotten meat. All the and rotten stuff. meat. And, and, then the like, and then they're like, and then they're like, okay, yeah. we revert it to you. The sun is like, I don't want that. I'm like, <laughs> God damn it! I know. I always wonder that too. Like, if he hadn't died, or like if he had like a very secure heir that would have, you know, continued on what he had started. Yeah. What would have What would have come from it? And it is interesting, right? Or if that, he would have got any pushback or a coup or something like this, people would have been like, yeah, no, like well, this isn't. And that's the thing, you know, I mean, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll get rid of the Bob Breyer of it all because we've done better work on Tut since then in terms of medical work, not mm, dissing yes. Bob. Um, right. There were no coups. I mean, that's the fascinating thing about Amarna. Very few. Right? We but don't, like no one cooed Akhenaten. We don't know it. Here's oh. the thing. If there's going to be a coup in Egypt, it's not something like, oh, unlike Rome, it wasn't that you would crow about. But who takes over after? I mean, look, there could have been an, he could have been a mad crazy dude and Nefertiti could have taken him out. You, we don't know. I think we have a good we parallel happening know. right now, like Putin and all his advisors. Yes. And it's thinking often about a quiet internal thing with like, oh, the king has died. We don't, what yeah, happened? Like what oh, no. it, do you like Putin's? The people below Putin, like, are there discussions or, What know? we can say about Egypt is not that there were no coups, but not, but that there were no openly crowed about and proclaimed and owned coups. Well, I would say that we, we have no evidence that there was anything. So if we look at the mummy in KV-55, if we, you yeah. know, look at the end of Akhenaten, if we look at Tut's mummy, none of those met violent nefarious yeah. ends well and he obviously convinced everyone to m create a new capital yeah. at amarna built the capital very quickly so there was no one no speed bumps no one was putting up any roadblocks here mm -hmm. it was like all full steam ahead you have full power yeah. um so and no we, one was and we don't see know. anything in the amarna letters either no yeah. and the the people who took power after benefited directly from akhenaten's power mm -hmm. during his reign exactly there's not like and that there's continuation from A3, his father, to his reign of certain officials, right? It's not yeah. like he did like a, I'm gonna cull all the past and bring in my my own like people that are loyal to me. Like people continue through. Ankesen Paaten, mm -hmm. soon to become Ankesen Amun, does not get to rule, and that is unusual for an 18th Dynasty reality. And instead, you get this old dude I, and he potentially marries her. And she is used as the linchpin. That in and of How itself is an Egyptian-style coup. That's How, a coup. How old was she, though? Who knows? Who knows? I mean, daughter of, of Akhenaten, will marry Tutankhamun. At, oh, no, has married Tutankhamun now at this point, what? I don't know, mid to late 20s? Well, I mean, also when the king dies and then there's like a power vacuum, people are going to take advantage. Mm -hmm. And maybe she just wasn't a, 
adept enough or didn't have the backing of people to like make that move. It's always about backing. Of course it's about backing. Hatshepsut doesn't claim it. But she had she's the probably like 16 or something when all of that happened. But, but she had the, but she in many ways these women are just ciphers. They're yeah. just yeah. tools and placeholders, right? So Hatshepsut it serves all of the elites who are in the court to have her continue so they keep their positions. What's interesting at this time is that it does not serve the elites to have Ankes and Amun continue as the holder of the power after the death of Tutankhamun. Instead, they marry her in an yeah. old West Asian patriarchal way, which is rather shocking for an Egyptian family-led dynasty. Because it's not family-led anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be army-led. But I but also could see if there's a big changes like the religion and the new capital and all these things. The easiest thing is to go back to how things were before. Well, and I would, and I would extend that and say, it goes to my, you know, what will no doubt be unpopular theory about Hattie bringing this all on <laughs> that we have now gotten rid of the men. We've gotten rid of a powerful figure in Nefertiti. So you have a young woman who does not have direct access to either of the two dominant power structures, military. either the priesthood or the military. Yeah. And the military is probably she was no all God's she has. wife of Amun. Yeah, that kind exactly. Of no, she's she's yeah. at that case kind of just a liability. And like yeah. you said, this is mm -hmm. potentially the best she can do. And yeah. reach out to yeah. um, Hittites and be like, "Can you send me a son? Send me a prince." Because mm -hmm. then it's like her, she could marry if her. if that's her. Yes, but I think be, it is. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Hatshepsut. When a woman gains power, she has to give to the elites who got her that power. That's Well, they're the ones that put her there. In some ways, she's not giving... Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh my God. In some ways, she's not giving them that power. She's being given that power she's by saying, those I'll elites. She's saying, I'll let you keep it. They're and saying, sure we'll let you stay. Yeah. They're saying... They're just self-dealing. So they're just self-dealing, and they've self-dealt themselves a, a female who's going to rule over Anka them, too. Almond probably had nothing to offer them. Yeah. She ran out of the gold necklaces. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, that's right. It's, it's, it's one Mom thing when they put Mom and dad die, husband dies. Yeah. What do you she, do? <laughs> how can she benefit them? And if, and if it is her, and I would tend to agree with you, Kara, and the military finds out. In the Hittite text, oh, yeah. you mean? In the, yeah. yeah. That she's like, I'm going to bring in someone else. They're probably like, If yeah. I nope. and her Remheb find out, oh, you're trying to bring in a foreigner. Then she's dead. Yeah, because now well, you, you've offered her us die, nothing. And then yeah. she's... <laughs> Stuck into the palace somewhere mm -hmm. in a room yeah. on house arrest or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You throw her in there, and then you've got Fun your. Fun in the harem. Bye. Yeah. You've got your legitimacy. Yeah. And We're then, married. And and you know, I doesn't have a, any any biological children who yeah. succeed him. She's gonna go to yeah. Hormone. Yeah. And then I think it's also noticeable then if we go back from from how this is viewed later on, right? Even though we have the restoration of the religion. You know, it's all of these kings we're talking about are all lumped in with Amarna, and there's all a conscious yeah. damnatio memori until we get to to Paramesu. No, Horemheb counts. Horemheb's okay. He's he's not included in all the kings' lists. Yeah, he doesn't show up. He's not in Dira Bahri 320. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he tries to take over right a very Egyptian king strategy. He says, "I restored it." Even though it was done under Tut, he tries yeah. that, and it's still it's still not enough. It's too soon. It's still too so soon. So the power shift towards a, a military structure changes with Ayan Hormheb, but no, they're too close to those Akhenaten yeah. guys. They're too close to that regime, and thus they're not included. I think yeah. so. Okay. And, 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 and a part of a reason of this, and this goes into very old strategy, right? Neither of them have sons. Yeah. I mean, they so may the, have had sons, well, they don't, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't, they're, yeah. they're not used in power. Yeah. So, so, so who there is going to ensure that? And at the end, so then, does it matter? 
arguably, so then how does Ramses change these things? I think he's just a break. Okay. And when you've got Ramses, and then you're leading, right, and then we're getting into Ramses the Great, we're getting into Seti, Seti. we're getting into that dynasty, you, that's a whole new chain that you just start. There's no reason to reach back. You know, you, you're, again, I think that's a strong military power. Mm -hmm. um, and we can talk about how Ramses the Great was not that great. <laughs> yeah. And how the empire starts to collapse under him. I wrote a him. whole chapter yeah, about that. There's it. a book about that. There's a book about that. Yeah. I did that. It was fun. And and then I went to I went to Houston where the traveling Ramses the Great exhibition is. And oh my goodness, he is so great. And every single statue in there is reused. And it was it was so much fun. To so be like, great. he yeah. stole that, and he took that, and he reappropriated that. Um, it's it's really wonderful, and it's not mentioned anywhere. No, people. I mean, mm -hmm. and this is one again. This gets to like, not one label. It gets it gets to again what we value, right? And it's mm -hmm. Ozymandias, and it's you know well, the narrative you want to push. King exactly, you want you know. him to be great, so you're not. Yeah, gonna... in the same way that we want Amarna and we want Akhenaten, and we want it to be monotheism, or some do. Mysterious. Um, and not not nearly enough people talk about I think the new solar religion, you know. Who, I mean, Amenhotep the third, right? Yeah. He he a three is one of our top kings. Mm -hmm. yeah. And who knows? I mean, he had a good reign, but if he ruled longer, he might have done something like that himself. He was already pushing it. He was already against you know acting against the cult, pushing it, and right. And Akhenaten and I and this is again one of those accidents, right? He he wasn't the crown prince. Mm -hmm. You know, his older brother died. He was not being groomed to take over. Um, and yeah, this is, yeah. and, and I mean, and we're just talking about the politics of it. I, I don't know what to do with the art. I mean, I have ideas, but it's crazy. His art is crazy. I mean, what's up the third's art and Akhenaten's art? They're, they're both so unique, so like brain meltingly beautiful, unusual yeah. and strange that you just don't know what to make of it. It's, it's extraordinary stuff. Yeah. yeah. And that's, and that's, and this is where, you know, talking about display and, yeah. and what people are communicating. That to me is what is so fascinating that I, I, I still can't wrap my head. Is it, is it trying to be a hoppy? He's a mother like, and yeah, a father like figure. A, yeah. You know, why She's does... Being genderqueer. Oh, this is all in the book of queer on Discovery Channel yeah. that's coming out in June. Because they're like, oh, we want to talk about how Shep said. I'm like, you could, and we'll mention her. But I think Akhenaten is what you want to look at. Because if anybody's trying to be Male, male female. and female, it's him. Yeah. And they're like, oh, tell us more. And so it went from there. And yeah. it's um, it's super interesting stuff. Yeah. When I, I already said, I think Tut is likely Smenkare's son. Um, but, you know, again, what if what if he wasn't? There's a good chance not. And But it's only with daughters. Like, and today's were like, it was Akhenaten a drag queen? Like, <laughs> did he want to be? I mean, there's all these things we can suppose. He's obviously siring children. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and they're in his art in a close familial yeah. way that's not existing before. And then, you know, A3, like with those almond eyes. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, all the ancient aliens people love these guys oh, yeah. because they look so strange. But like... But beautiful. Yeah, but you can see Egyptians with those eyes. Oh, yeah. Today. They're not too... F you can't. I just wonder, like you it said... It might be like anime. Portraiture is always difficult. Yeah. Portraiture is hard. It's idealized and it's perfected. There's a message. There's an agenda. As you say with processions, there's so much there that we can't talk about because we're not there to witness the procession. Yeah. We're not the elites who see the actual face and then see the statue and know the difference. There has to be something, yeah. though, of like purely aesthetic, like it being so beautiful yeah. and everyone knowing 
that it's beautiful and like you know you can look at a nice statue from the middle kingdom or from Khafre's stuff and you're like that's a nice statue but it's not like Amenhotep III gorgeous like they got the proportions so on that every human being is like that's a beautiful you have to compare it to those times in history and those leaders who understood how to curate themselves and their displays with exquisite precision. So you have to compare it to those time periods like Louis the 14th and building at Versailles mm -hmm. and the, the craft production. Yeah, the Kennedys are yep, great. Kennedys. They curated with precision. Every little dinner plate yeah. was perfectly organized. Beautiful. Everything. And so those, those, um, so wait, we had Louis the Fourteenth in our world, Jackie O and John F. Kennedy. Who else would you put in there who produces with such? I don't know, like Lady Gaga. It's a ridiculous example, perhaps, but so much attention yeah. to detail that you you can't stop. You can't have to look more. You yeah. have to notice every little thing. And, and I have to think there's some like innate human, like broader humanity of yeah. like us being attracted to you know perfect symmetry and these like certain proportions, you know, the golden ratio and all these mm -hmm. things that. But yeah. When what, you think of the Italian Renaissance, you can't yeah. link it to one particular ruler, you all of these know. beautiful things that are created because of the amount of wars that are happening yeah. between Florence and Rome and Rome and whatever. But it's, but you can still see that kind of beauty being presented but then and, in competition. Turns it on its head. Cause you're like, it's still it's still beautiful. Beautiful, but then there's something. Every detail is curated, but it's yes. sloppy. It's quickly done. It's 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 churned out, and you with people know more, yeah. when something's churned out versus not. Yeah. they know if somebody's trying to create a quick and dirty festival. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Okay, everyone, be amazed. Okay, now moving along. Yeah, it, it, versus something that is like the jubilee of Queen Victoria that is so carefully curated that you're just like, oh my god, every little thing. The horse's crest, the mm -hmm. the way they were cleaned, the way their tails were braided, whatever. Every little thing was thought of. Yeah. And it, it's it's that kind of attention to detail that makes you understand that you're dealing with a more deliberate power than than not. And when you get to Ramses the second, he's all about the populism, all about the big show. It's not the same, it's not mm -hmm. gonna last. Mm -hmm. It's not gonna last. Seti the first carefully curates. Seti the first is a very Louis the Fourteenth, Jackie O, kind of viewing these inanimate objects with like life. Yes, that there was a, a communication from the top where Seti or whoever is like, no, no, it's got to be fucking perfect. Yeah. I don't want one thing in disarray. And when you walk into his temple at Abydos, you're like, oh my mm -hmm. god. And then you go next door to Ramses the <laughs> Second, and you're like, this oh. is a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a piece of shit. It's shoddy. The construction's not great. Like, I can oh. see, you know, that, that they're just slapping paint here and there. The comparison doesn't hold, and you just wonder what what creates the one and what creates the other. Mm -hmm. That there is kind of an insecurity or a, a neediness to prove with the JFK or the SETI. Well, and the more, and then the other is like, yeah, I'm I'm wealthy and famous, like a Trumpian <laughs> sort of. You know, I look at look at my big show and it's fine. It's well, beautiful. in the modern world, we would say, you know, it would be a genius, right? It'd be the Leonardo da Vinci mm -hmm. came up with this new artistic style or the insert other famous artist here. But we can't say that for ancient Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. We always, we link it to some type of genius individual, the king or some type of whoever was in charge of, you know, the craftsman artist. Well, and this is what I, this. and this is what I think is fascinating about 
the Amarna art as a comparison. So the thing I think is really fascinating about Amarna from an Egyptian perspective, an ancient Egyptian, is that for this short 17-ish year period mm. that they tried to erase, we have all this evidence. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about the art in this period is you can see it's experimenting. You can see it kind of starts and it gets grotesque. And by the end, it's a softened kind yeah, of realized yeah. si style in a way that... And you see that in the religion too. You see that he's using all these different names of the God and then it becomes streamlined, simplified, more elegant it's as it like goes forward. kind of like what we did with our podcast. When we first started the podcast, we <laughs> oh, were like, over mess. Zoom, we're going to try this microphone. Yeah, yeah. We're going to do this. And then we were like, okay, like, no, like back to basics. Like we're going to just get really nice mics and like that's it you know you you have to, it's the trial and error of things yeah and it's and it's fascinating i mean in every aspect right he he builds a temple to the Aten at karnak mm -hmm. and it doesn't work it's too charged i mean that that i think to me is fascinating in a way in the ancient world that we don't get those snapshots that we 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 tend to kind of you know i was just reading something i think it was kitchen um right like the intermediate period like we see something and we just dead reckon backwards like it must have been like this and this must have been the intent because this is what we see it ended up yeah. and there's i think there's none of that right like if if he died year five then they, they don't move to amarna yeah and who knows what happens and, may, and maybe there's still a temple to the Aten in thebes because it was ancient you know may, maybe you don't have the damnasio memori maybe yeah. the priests or were his just brother had lived and taken the throne yeah you know, what would have been very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's the individual versus the system. Was it all inexorably moving towards that moment or how much mm -hmm. did the individual mm -hmm. have a say? I think Akhenaten as an individual had a very large say yeah. in, in some crazy shit going down that if he, if it had been a different person, it would have been, yeah. it would have been different. So within that, I'm assuming that you're not a co-regency girl. Uh, like yeah. Yeah. So or at least certainly not any sort of substantial one. Yeah, the co-regency question for those of you who don't know is whether or not Akhenaten as Amenhotep IV ruled concurrently with Amenhotep III, his father, and for how long he may have ruled. And co-regencies are a whole big hot topic in Egyptology mm. anyway. And if you want, you can look at a kind of outdated book by William Murnane. Um And I would say that co-regencies are becoming less accepted throughout Egyptology than they had been, even Middle Kingdom co-regencies. Yeah. think they're problematic, these codated things. I, I'm starting to see them more as relying on ancestors. They're like retroactive. Retroactive justification yes. in the same way that Hatshepsut claims that her father crowned her yeah. and that he was there in some way. It's the ancestor is doing it. I, I would I would claim some of these simultaneous cartouches with Akhenaten or Amenhotep the Fourth. I, I don't remember which is which. With with Amenhotep the Third would be it's got to be Amenhotep the Fourth, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. What would be? Um, That's why people argue it's Korean because they yeah. haven't changed his name yet. Yeah, would are um, are more of an ancestor justification than anything else. In the same way that Sobek Nofru uses the name of her father, Amenemhet the mm Third, -hmm. and he's long dead by yeah. the time she puts these things up, we assume. She's but like, she hey, uses remember? that name and people <laughs> thought there was a co-regency for her and him. So um, I'm not, you know, maybe there was a short co-regency. Mm -hmm. Who knows? We don't know. And, but I don't buy this 12-year stuff. And the evidence for it, in my opinion, is very problematic. In the same way that we often see that the uh, the son of his body we know was not a son yeah. of his body. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that that's something that um, 
Yeah. Or what's the, he uh, shared this with me. I'm the one and only person. And then like the next line, what in Wenny's autobiography is yeah. like me and so-and-so did this together. <laughs> <And it's> like, <laughs> the soul friend. Yeah. Yeah. There is no soul friend. I think it's, I think it's one of those things that, and maybe it's, what are we now? Post postmodernism? Have we heard add a third know. post in there? Um, but that they took. We're just all, in decadence. Yeah. I know. <laughs> just ended. Well, in just decadence. That, they, that that so many of the early Pure scholars gluttony. took them at their word. Yeah. Like, oh, no. This, we know it was his son because it mm -hmm. says, "I'm the son of his body." Oh, Egyptologists! <laughs> Egyptologists, as you know, some still do. As you yeah, know, yeah, I have yeah. said, drink the Kool Aid. And they want to believe the propaganda as written, the idea, or if you don't want to call it propaganda, and that's too much for you, they believe the idealizing texts. Yeah, okay, now I'll take more. Okay. Um, they believe <laughs> the idealizing texts as written, and and they don't critically approach it yeah. as agendas of power. Read between the lines. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yep. my God, we're moving through that bottle. My I goodness. I blame Remy. Done. I think um, I'll, I'll crib from Kara, right? I think with all of these things at its root level, right, people are messy. Yeah. And to assume any, any one sort of meaning, any one sort of interpretation um, that they're giving, I think, is, is going down the wrong path. Yeah. Um, whether they're conscious of it or not. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that whether it's looking at Amarna, whether it's looking at this religion, I mean, at, at a base level, much of this says just as much about us doing the interpreting mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. it does them, right? I'm, yeah. We're coming at this from a Catholic background and we're like, yeah, like these festivals would be just like this. And look at the people that participate and do this yeah. in a way that somebody not exposed to that, you know, uh, uh, somebody in an Egyptian Muslim doing this interpretation may or may not have that same. Um, so I realize I'm equally projecting mm -hmm. my own experiences mm -hmm. into this. Um, but I think that, it, you know, what it, what it does to show us, or at least I think what was interesting to me, um, is just showing that humans are humans. Yeah. And these people were not any less primitive. They were doing the same moves. Than us. <laughs> than us. Yeah. Than us. <laughs> um, they, were, they, were doing, um, they were doing the same things. They were networking. Mm -hmm. They were accessing systems. They were engaging in display. They were, you know, doing conscious and subconscious flexes on each other. You know, where do I get to put my stila versus where do you get mm -hmm. to put yours? What am I doing it with? Um, and that none of these things are contradictory, yeah. right? Um, that all of these things can exist together and that's not denying piety, that it's not denying, you know, any sort of actual religious experience or religiosity, um, another term some will use, yeah. um, that this is something where they could be, as we think of it, as devout, but they're also engaging in all these other things. Um, that plus, you know, and this is something I wonder about and I'm very mixed on this and I would love to hear your two thoughts, you know, um, one of the things that I always say when, when students ask about jobs or going into Egyptology, mm. we are by far of any field I can think of the biggest disconnect between supply and demand. And by that, I mean, any university has classicists, mm -hmm. has biblical scholars who quite often teach our classes yeah. to greater or lesser success. Yeah. Um, and that if you start offering Egyptology classes in those settings, they fill up, they're more popular. Um, and yet why is it that we don't see more Egyptologists? We, we produce them, um, but why don't they get those jobs? And it, again, this has to do with what... Very clear answer. <laughs> uh, well, I, 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 mean, I, have, I have an answer for that too, because they're starting to get those jobs more and more. More, but like traditionally biblical, because America is based from a Judeo-Christian yeah. background, yeah. 
Greek and Roman because America is based racism. on a Freemasonry. <laughs> and but like white people, like everyone thinks, oh, white civilization dates back to Rome, ancient Greece and Rome. So you mm -hmm. need the classics then. Mm -hmm. And just by calling it the classics and not Greek mm -hmm. and Roman classics, mm -hmm. um, and that Egypt is outside of that purview yeah. and niche, <laughs> and you know, but yeah. And I mean, yeah, and it's and it's to me, it's always so surprising, you know, and I can be kind of. Um, you know, sarcastic when it comes to lots of classical studies. But largely, you know, when I'm asked what drew me to Egypt, it's because we still have work to do. Um, and that shocks people when you tell them. Mm -hmm. Like, we, so we, we pull, not only do we pull new texts and new stela and new objects out of the ground every day, yeah. you would not believe how many magazines there are with unpublished texts. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's like biblical scholars, they've been writing about one set of texts, yeah. right? So that... For yeah. a thousand years. For thousands of years. <laughs> I, I mean, and that's not to say, I mean, hey, you know, give me a, uh, give me a queer theory reading of the Iliad that I haven't seen. Yep. That might be interesting. But at the same time, like, it literally, exists. we've got a papyrus there that no one has read before. Oh, yeah. And maybe, you know, and, and again, you know, somebody finds that and maybe that's Quack and it's the book of the temple. And it's going to tell us, you know, so much more that we're going to go back and relook at everything in light of this. Well, and how long Egyptian culture was around for compared to Greece or Rome, you know, thousands of years and on, compounded with things not being fully published and things always new coming up and yeah. there's and so it, many avenues. Yeah. And it, and it amazes me that, and it's perhaps not the way we should think about it because we are all right coming from, but the extent to which you consider um, education a product and a product to be consumed that there's a demand that the existing power structures will not create a supply for. That if you looked at a budget model that said, you need to get 30 students enrolled in a class, mm -hmm. and that pays for the instructor and pays for the overhead and facilities. Yeah, but Eric, you know we got to take a step back here and talk about how tenure-track professors, when I was coming up, were at least 50% of the academy, and now they're like under 20. So let's talk about that and what but, but does that'll that have mean? to be a different episode. Let's, we can do that in a yeah, different episode. That has we'll to be a different episode. In our, we're gonna keep Eric and do like a little alt act episode okay. with him later. Okay. But so we're wrapping this pause. up, Jordan. We're wrapping <laughs> so this we're, up. So we're wrapping this up. <laughs> and we thank Eric Wells for his service. Yes. And his whiskey, because he brought it. Yes. And it's Oban, 14 well, years. And it's it, nice. But I guess we count as bringing it together. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> well we know, done. We can give Amber the credit. I'll, I'll, well I'll, done. I'll, I'll tag on to all of her accolades however I can. Yeah. But I'd like to thank everyone for listening. And thank this is you. Afterlives with Kara Cooney. <sighs> did it without prompting. Oh my God. Yeah. Thank you, Eric. This was wonderful. So thank you. Super it's great a lot conversation. of fun. It was super fun. Super fun. Okay, snack break. Okay. Yay. <laughs> Thank you to our listeners for your support and for subscribing wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with others and leave us a five-star review. Send us your questions related to the show and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. You can find the show notes in the podcast section of my website, karakuniegyptologist.com. For that, thank you, Amber Myers-Wells. There you'll also find info on my books and upcoming lectures. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter to keep up on the latest news and content from me. Check out the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off by subscribing to our Substack Afterlives After Party. You can find me on Facebook at Karakuni Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Karakuni. 
See you next time on After Lives with Kara Cooney.